Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome David Reynolds to our Lincoln Log podcast. David is a wonderful historian who is the author or editor of 15 books, many with an emphasis on the Civil War era or the era's leading figures. He has been awarded the Bancroft Prize, the Christian Goss Award, the Ambassador Book Award, the Gustavus Myers Award, and was a finalist for the National Books Critic Circle Award. He is a regular reviewer for the New York Times Book Review. His most recent book, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times, has turned quite a bit of heads and will no doubt be a prominent stocking stuffer this holiday weekend. David, thank you for joining the podcast. Great to be here, Joshua. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're obviously an expert on the Civil War and Lincoln. So what sticks out to you as something you learned uh, during writing this book? I was quite surprised how radically open Lincoln was to his um, contemporary culture because in one of the very best books on Lincoln uh, by David Donald, a biography, Donald said he entered the presidency the least prepared of all of our presidents. And I found, and that's kind of based on the fact that, okay, he was a self-made man and all of that, and he had less than one year of education, which is true. But um, I read a passage from Emerson who said, of all the great heroes in American history, Lincoln is the one who traverses, crosses the entire range of cultural experience from the very highest to the lowest. And uh, it's true. I mean, on the one hand, uh, he could, Lincoln could uh, recite Shakespeare by the page, not to impress people, but just to express certain emotions that he had. He could attend opera and, and all of that, but he also uh, went all the way down to kind of dirty humor and, uh, you know, body jokes and that kind of thing. And this sort of grotesque uh, frontier humor. <laughs> and then he liked everything kind of in the middle too. For, you know, he loved uh, sentimental songs, for example. Mm -hmm. His favorite song was called 20 Years Ago and it's quite, quite sentimental and everything like that. So yeah, he really did uh, bridge all levels of culture, which is partly why he had such a compassionate vision for people of different backgrounds and different cultural levels. Uh, he was by no means a snob. Uh, he was neither John Quincy Adams, who knew, knew seven languages and read the Bible in a different language every year, on the one hand, nor was the Andrew Jackson, who was a populist who, uh, it was rumored, had only read one book in his life uh, beside the Bible, and that was uh, a novel <laughs> uh, called The Vicar of Wake Wakefield. So, uh, yeah, and, and but but Lincoln uh, re really, uh, you know, had this democratic sensibility. Yeah, and, it, it, 
Yeah, that, that, that kind of surprised me, yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that's no doubt part of the reason probably no American has been written about more than Abraham Lincoln because of his ability to sort of transcend all different uh, categories of, of folks. What For somebody who's been written about as much as Abraham Lincoln has, what do you feel like really sets your biography apart when, 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 when a reader picks it up? What do you hope that they walk away with that sets, sets your, your contribution to this uh, body apart? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I, um, I offer what I call a cultural biography. Um, we are all uh, strongly shaped by our cultural environment, both our immediate uh, local culture but also as that local culture intersects with elements of the larger culture, mm -hmm. uh, the larger American culture. And um, there have been so many books about Lincoln, wonderful books, but you can read book after book and not meet somebody like Edgar Allan Poe, whose poetry he would recite uh, or uh, even hear very much about his very popular humor, uh, most popular uh, humorist, uh, Petroleum Nasby, for example, um, or about Artemis Ward. You, you, you occasionally will hear about him, but he was another popular humorist who was uh, so, so important. Um, or about even about Walt Whitman. Occasionally Whitman is mentioned because Whitman uh, witnessed him on the streets in, in Washington, but there's so many deep connections between Walt Whitman and, and, and Lincoln and so forth and kind of on and on and on. The whole uh, contemporary culture in which he swam, so to speak, is quite often left out. So I want to use his life as, as a kind of skeleton of, of the narrative, to be sure. But then around that skeleton, I interweave almost like a tapestry or something, all these different cultural strands that influenced him and that he in turn uh, fed back and influenced himself. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's great. Not, a, I think too often people, when they set out to write a biography, don't, don't contextualize the subject within the culture that they're in. So I, I, I deeply appreciate um, that aspect of your work. Um, a lot of what I research and write on focuses on Lincoln's youth uh, in Indiana. So I'm eager to get your perspective on his youth, how it influenced him, and maybe even that culture, um, and, and how that affected him as he went on to become president. Yeah, well, obviously, he's born in Kentucky and then moves at a fairly young age to Indiana. Both of their environments um, were extremely important um, on shaping him. In Kentucky, um, his parents broke off from the Baptist church and, and uh, from the regular Baptist church and joined uh, 19 people who formed an anti-slavery uh, Baptist um, sect almost, which was rather unusual. So and Lincoln said, I, I never recall a time in which I did not hate slavery. You know, he, so, so from a very young age, um, he did. Also, um, they were in an area of Kentucky where, where nearly half of the working population were enslaved people. So he, mm -hmm. uh, we don't have direct record of his response immediately, but he must have witnessed uh, slavery around him. And he did, did say that one of the reasons why his parents uh, removed to Indiana was 
slavery. Uh, the other was the indeterminate real estate situation in uh, mm -hmm. Kentucky, where there was a phenomenon called layering, which means that a lot of these lands, huge territories had been bought up initially by Eastern investors. And then Kentucky settlers came later and bought parcels and, and then somebody else bought their parcel. But the original <laughs> Eastern um, landlord was not paid and everything. So the, it became a, mish, uh, a very mushy real estate situation. Yeah. So they went to Indiana where uh, the land was more government apportioned and it was a much more solid kind of real estate situation. Although Indiana at the time was really the wild frontier. It was, it was, it was a very, you know, it was a, uh, probably even more so than, than Kentucky at, at that particular time. It was a new state and the population density was, was quite low. And it was kind of a, it, it was very much of a direct confrontation uh, and immersion in nature in a very raw form. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the way in which um, what's known as the post-human. The post-human is just in anything outside of us, outside of humanity, that influences us. Right now, we're all living by the post-human because the thing, COVID, at this particular moment, is greatly shaping the way we behave. So in a way, we're living a post-human existence right now. And back then, and at other moments, there could be a hurricane, Katrina, that could be the post-human thing, or it could be an earthquake. I used to live in California, and earthquake could be a, uh, you know something outside. But he was always surrounded by um, uh, by raw, raw nature, and it kind of, uh, I think, produced in him a an awareness of the earth and a closeness to nature, and it kind of feeds into. Even the way he talks in the Gettysburg Address about, you know, our founders conceiving on this continent, you know, the, the, the earth, the continent, and then uh, so that democracy will not perish from the earth, you know, from the yeah. earth, that, that kind of thing. There's, uh, and a lot of his jokes were in a way post-human, almost all his jokes involved animals or things or that kind of thing, and, and mixed them up with human beings and so forth. So I think that that was really uh, shaped, uh, you know, by his Indiana culture. Um, he only had fragmentary schooling, but, uh, you know, back then, um, another thing that kind of bothers me a little bit is I think uh, Tom Lincoln, his father, gets a little bit too short shrift. Now, it is true. It, it read it, my mind because that's what's going to be one of my next questions, what your take on, on Thomas Lincoln was. yeah. He's seen as such a negative influence, but many modern historians, I think, are starting to reassess that view. So I was, you know, curious yeah. how you would categorize him. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, the case against him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he could barely read, not very literate. Uh, he may at one point have gotten mad at Lincoln, perhaps for reading instead of doing the work around the house or something like that. But, but generally, you know, the the direct reports that you read. Um, by people who knew Tom Lincoln um, a long time ago. They were recorded later on by Herndon, and he went back to them. He, he really gets quite high, quite high, high marks as, as a very good worker, as kind of an upright man, and also someone who uh, is kind of genial. Actually, he was a little bit like Lincoln himself because he could, he's a great storyteller and a humorist, 
but he could also sink into the hypo, into the hypo, the the, the blues. You know, he, he could also have the blues. Uh, kind of like Lincoln himself, actually, uh, later on did that. But in general, uh, for example, it was a culture of a lot of drinking, alcoholism, and he, Tom Lincoln would have his toddy now and then, but that, you know, he, he really didn't drink, nor, nor did, did uh, Lincoln himself. Um, and uh, he was a fairly good provider, actually. And uh, the fact that Lincoln once said, I used to be a slave about his childhood. Well, when you're living on the frontier, it's understood that everybody, all the children will help out with the subsistence lifestyle uh, that is largely that largely was the, the the frontier. So for Lincoln to be farmed out to to do these odd jobs and you know for other people and also whatever you know for his father and everything, that was not unusual at all. Right. Right. And uh, so yeah, um, and uh, he actually looked back in his childhood. Um, to one of his closest friends, a lawyer, he said, actually, my, my childhood was, was quite joy, joyous. Uh, we never felt that pinched or anything. And the reason they didn't feel that pinched is that even though Indiana in 1819 uh, underwent a severe recession, almost a depression, um, actually subsistence living made sense. You know, pe people did relatively well because they were kind of living off the land, so to speak. So they they they, they didn't mind that, and a lot of their um, trade was by barter, by barter. So, in a way, they didn't really get involved too much in the financial downturn of that time. Uh -huh. So, in, you know, in general, I think I do. I'm not trying to be rosy about the father, but I think that he has gotten a, a short shrift. Is that that your impression in general too, or is that? Yeah, yeah I mean, I I think I I certainly fall on 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 the more positive overall influence and i and to the extent it was negative um uh, i i agree with you that it, it's it's negative in keeping with the times right i don't think for for his times and his place on the frontier i don't foresee thomas lincoln being out of bounds from a negative sense and i think he he obviously was a hard worker um he had a, a good work ethic um i i just think you know what he viewed as the skills necessary to get ahead in life um, were different than than what Abraham Lincoln saw and what Abraham Lincoln wanted out of life. And, yeah, so, and I think what happens is that when they move to Illinois, and then Tom Lincoln lives in a different part of Illinois, Illinois, I think at that point there is a kind of distancing, right? Um, because Lincoln at that point really does have kind of a change um, or. A, a new kind of dedication to a different kind of advance. Uh, as a politician, as a lawyer, uh, kind of entering more the traditional uh, middle-class middle lifestyle, whereas Tom Lincoln really never leaves <laughs> right. that kind of older, older lifestyle. So I think, that, you know, I think at that point there is kind of a separation. Yeah. Right. How, how would you describe Lincoln's law career for our listeners? Well, I would say that he was um, an intuitive lawyer. He uh, only had a small handful of books that he read, but he read them over and over again. And he was a very good case lawyer. He worked case by case. His um, law partner, one of his law partners, Herndon, said that he was not a learned lawyer. He didn't study the law that much. But 
the, the, the small amount of books that he did study, he studied them very well. And he was very, very good in court, in court. He was, he was very good in court. And to me, it also broadened his horizon immensely because back then we didn't have someone in real estate law and someone in ambulance chasing or whatever, or this kind of law, that kind of law. He would go around the law circuit because these small towns in Illinois uh, didn't have lawyers. So he and a bunch of other lawyers would go from town to town to town and handle the cases. But it could be a local argument of who owns pigs. Uh, it could be he did a lot of debt law, bankruptcy law. He did mm -hmm. homicides. He did a lot of divorce law. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a lot of spousal abuse law. Uh, he would do law against railroads and for railroads and everything. To me, it was a very, very, very broadening kind of uh, experience. And he learned in the law, he said, I like to study my opponent's case just as strong, his reasoning just as much as my own reasoning. And to me, that was a real uh, producer of an elasticity of thinking. Yeah. If you if you can enter into the other person's reasoning, and, and you know, he would say that, you know, I, I I would think about that, and so he could really anticipate a lot of the arguments in court. So right, yeah, yeah. right. What what would you say is your favorite Lincoln speech, and why? Uh, I hate to be boring, but the Gettysburg Address, because <clears throat> what he does there is he boils down the American experience in such a beautiful, eloquent, mm -hmm. and pithy, short way. Um, and every word is carefully chosen. The language is very rhythmic. It's poetic. Uh, and he brings human equality to the very, very center of what America means. And he does it in his first sentence. Uh, and uh, and then uh, he also defines democracy of the people, for the people, and by the people. That's how he en en ends up. And, uh, and now not all of the Gettysburg Address is, is uh, original. Um, the four score uh, thing had been used not only in the Bible, but by previous politicians uh, of the people, for the people, and so forth. There have been 12 different versions of, of that previously. Daniel Webster, Theodore Parker, and so forth. Uh -huh. Although he, although he straightens it out and make, makes it much more rhythmic, um, and even "New Birth of Freedom" had been used used uh, that phrase at least twice um, by by previous. So, so uh, but I think it was Picasso who said, "I'm the greatest borrower that there is." <laughs> you know, right. so, so sometimes great great people will will borrow. I mean, Moby, right. Dick, Moby Dick came right out of, you know, Mocha Dick, the legend of which was very popular in the magazine. The Scarlet Letter, five years before, there was a popular novel about a woman who, wrote a, uh, who wore a Scarlet Letter. I mean, uh, a lot of great people will, will borrow, borrow, borrow. Right. And, um, and I, you know, so, so he borrows, but a great genius or a great orator will know how to then transform these borrow borrowings and put them together in some kind of very expressive way. And he right. does that there. I love that speech. I love the second inaugural. I love Peoria, 1854. Um, 
I love Cooper Union for a different reason. That's more, I, I just love the logic of that. And he goes right. to the founding fathers and he kind of almost does a head count, head count of the, and how did they really feel about slavery? Even some of those who owned enslaved or had enslaved people. Well, the majority of them actually, he says in that speech, envisage the eventual extinction of slavery. You know, right. and, you know. So to me, the, uh, the the history and logic of that is just wonderful. Yeah, Cooper Cooper Union, I think, is interesting in this that from seems to me a lot of historians overlooked it or didn't give it quite enough attention until I think uh, Harold Holzer really shined a light on it recently. I was so uh, happy that Harold wrote that yeah. book. Really, really happy. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, I agree. Well, what's your assessment of Lincoln as a commander in chief? He entered, unlike Jefferson Davis, who had been um, an officer and and also in the Mexican War and everything and you know, West Point. Uh, his only experience, Lincoln's only experience, was briefly in the Black Hawk War. You know, in right. 1832, didn't have much experience and. Uh, he read up on some uh, books of literary, I mean, of um, military theory and so forth. And uh, he stumbled through a lot of rather poor generals. Um, McClellan was, uh, he, he became dependent on McClellan early on because McClellan was really a good inspirer. And he really inspired troops, soldiers. McClellan did, and he was uh, mm-hmm. very smart. Uh, I think he'd been number two or three in his class at West Point. Very smart, very charismatic, very... Trouble is, he really was dilatory when he got to the... Um, and a little bit cautious when he got to the battlefield. And he right. always overestimated the the enemy's forces and so forth. And finally, after Antietam, um, Lincoln got kind of angry that as he had gotten... Um, angry at Meade after uh, Gettysburg for not chasing um, Lee and, and do, doing him off. He just fired him at that point. And then Lincoln kind of stumbles through various people, Burnside, who had the disaster at Fredericksburg. Right. And then Hooker, who had Chancellorsville. And finally, he takes notice of what's happening with Grant, you know, with Vicksburg and all of that. And then, of course, Meade does um, stop um, uh, uh, does stop Lee at Gettysburg, so that's good. And then he has Vicksburg. So um, I think what's best about him, Lincoln as commander in chief, is that unlike certain presidents, he doesn't just fire people, let's say, because they're not loyal to him. Um, in fact, very few of his generals were agreed with him politically, even right. Uh, even uh, Sherman, even Sherman, even Grant said, "I'm not not a, a Lincoln man," <laughs> and 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 McClellan, of course, uh, was right. complete race, complete race, racist, and, and 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 just you know. Anyway, so, but but he said, you know, I'm not looking for uh, personal loyalty. I, I I just want to win battles. So he's wise enough to kind of sift through the generals and a pro and take a harder. Uh, in the middle of the war, a harder um, vision of w- what war should be. Right. And he says, so far we've done, you know, so far we've done squirt guns filled with 
rose water, you know, in our military on the battlefield. We really need to be a little more like what Francis Lieber, the military theorist, says, which is uh, a hard war can be a just war. That you know, in a way, the hard if if you get the war done with, then that's more of a just war than just sort of extending it out forever and everything like that. Yeah, I think James McPherson touches on that when he addresses the strategy of unconditional surrender that really highlights Lincoln wanted peace, but he knew it could only really be achieved through a hard war. Um, yeah. And I think that helped shape some of the aggressive tactics we saw with Grant and Sherman and Sheridan um, and, yeah. and this unconditional approach. But but I also like that you highlight um, he was a constant learner. I think he had a certain humility about that and would read military strategy uh, spent a lot of time in the telegraph office uh, sending and receiving military dispatches, uh, just re- very much a student. As you point out, he didn't have a strong military background himself necessarily. That didn't stop him from um, from learning as much as he could about it. Um, another of many admirable traits about Lincoln, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, he actually actually learned the code of the, the telegraph and uh, he spent so many, many hours in the time. Te- it's the first time that warfare, in a sense, could be experienced uh, in kind of real time because the telegraph, it's the first time it had been used extensively in a major war. So, yeah, he, uh, right. he got all these dispatches from the front and he would make intuitive decisions and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, we mentioned at the, at the top of, about uh, your desire and effort to really place Lincoln in the cultural context and I, too, love that aspect of your book. And so one of the, the new chapters that I really like in your book is titled Blondin, Barnum, and Bahoy's Three Bs. Um, <laughs> and each of those were, uh, were a 19th century cultural phenomenon that reveals something fresh about Lincoln. Could you summarize um, those influences and what drove you to uh, write that chapter? Sure, yeah. Blondin um, speaks to Lincoln's public uh, poses, kind of a moderate, a centrist, because he felt the worst thing he could do in a um, divided time is to inflame either either side, either extreme. And mm-hmm. so um, Blondin was a very skillful French uh, acrobat who came to America and walked across Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls many times. Um, he did it backward, forward on stilts. Uh, he did it pushing a wheelbarrow. He did it with a man on his back and, you know, no net. And uh, during the 1860 campaign, cartoonists picked up on the comparison between Blondin and, and Lincoln, and they portrayed him as, <laughs> as Blondin walking across the tightrope because he was known I mean, he was known as kind of a, a, a centrist. He wasn't on the more radical wing, such as, uh, or perceived radical ring, uh, wing, such as uh, Chase or Seward. Uh-huh. And it was, wasn't on the perceived um, moderate wing like uh, um, Bates. He was uh, sort of a much more moderate. And uh, then when he was in office, actually, he, he himself compared himself to Blondin several times. And when a couple of uh, groups came to him and said, one from Boston and one from the West said, can't you make this a more explicitly anti-slavery war from the beginning? And he said, if Blondin were pushing a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls and the wheelbarrow was was filled with the American future, 
would you tell the blondin to step left, step right, jump up, jump down, or whatever? No, no, you would let him keep right on his his course, his eccentric course. He said, you know what? If I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, we're going to lose one of the border states. We're going to lose, uh, you know, K- Kentucky or, uh, you know, Missouri or Maryland or Tennessee. One. And he said, if we lose Kentucky, we might as well give in right now. Right. You know, you know, he had, he had to remain Blondin. So that, that covers Blondin. Barnum refers to the culture of sensationalism. Uh, P.T. Barnum was, in, was not involved in the circus at that time. He, he exhibited oddities or p- uh, things that were considered oddities at that time. Um, whoever was the tallest, the fattest, the this, the that, the thinnest, uh, he would exhibit the, and people would pay to come see these exhibits. Um, one was the Fiji mermaid who he advertised in posters as this beautiful, beautiful half-nude woman in fish. Turns out, turns out it was a m- monkey's torso uh, <laughs> sewed up to a, a salmon's tail and suspended in water with a little blonde wig on there. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but it was that kind of thing. And anything kind of little curious or odd uh, was the culture of of what I call the est factor, you know, the 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 uh, the tallest and fattest, that kind of thing, or the weirdest. Um, and Lincoln, uh, in a way, liked to run as the ugliest. He said, you know, I'm the ugly, ugliest guy around. He, I don't think he was that ugly. But people, in a way, played up his, his sort of homely right. uh, uh, stature and face and everything. And in a way, he put that on exhibit, even when he was on his uh, train stops, whistle stops. He would kind of make fun of his, his ugliness. He loved to tell a joke about... Uh, about it, or jokes about his own uh, homeliness and so forth. Um, but also he was put on display as the rail splitter uh, because uh, just before the 1860 convention, someone brought in rails that he had split a long mm-hmm. time ago. And for a long time, Lincoln had been a um, middle-class uh, lawyer. He, he had once <laughs> been a rail splitter and all of that and frontiersman, but when uh, a long lost relative came in with these rails, suddenly everyone said, ha ha, here we are. And Abe, in a way, this gets to my title, Abe. He didn't like that name, Abe, but he allowed, he said, I could only have been elected on the name of Honest Abe, Old Abe, Uncle Abe, or Abe, the Illinois rail splitter. The common man, he was sold. He was put on display everywhere. Right. During the 1860 convention as the rolled up sleeves woodsman you know with an axe and you know so so forth and that that's that really catapulted him uh to uh, being beloved by by the average uh person and among the average uh, people that he wanted to cultivate were the bohoys the boys was just the era's that era's name for the working class person the day laborer the butcher um just just kind of the everyday joe so to speak and uh, when Walt Whitman, five years earlier, had written Leaves of Grass, his famous poem, he had presented himself as one of the roughs, he's um, one of the roughs, turbulent, drinking, breeding, eating. Now, Walt Whitman was none of those things. He was a middle class journalist. He was not a rough. He didn't drink. He didn't breed. Didn't do he wasn't turbulent. He was a very common. But he presented himself by name 
and and his reviewers, uh, the first three reviewers said, "This is our Bohoy poet." This is our. They, they actually use use that word. Uh, it was also called the Bowery Boy, and it became a national figure because uh, it began on, began on the streets of New York. But pretty soon, the Illinois sucker. That's, that was the uh, nickname for the young person, a uh, young uh, rough person, you know, the sucker named after a fish or the Indiana Hoosier, the Hoosier. Uh, and the Wolverine was the uh, Wisconsin. Every state had its own version of the Bahoy. And when Lincoln ran in 1860, he was known as uh, both the Hoosier and the sucker and the Illinois rail splitter and Abe, and they all kind of ran together. So right. then the, uh, this group of Bahoys organized around him and called themselves the Wide Awakes, the Wide Awakes, and they dressed up and they in oilskin coats and they paraded at night. Well, scary now with, with torches. <laughs> we don't yeah. like to think about that, but, but with torches and everything, but it was all for, for Abe and for uh, uh, you know freedom, liberty, all. Abraham Lincoln presided over uh, one of the most divided times in America. How would he confront a lot of the divisions that we see today? Well, we we know how he would act because um, he did live in a even more divided time uh, than we do. I mean, 750,000 Americans died uh, in the Civil War some from disease, but a lot just in, in battle, and uh, they were killing each other, so we were, they were at each other's throats. But he never once demonized uh, Southern people. Uh, he didn't demonize um, the opposition or uh -huh. even his opponents in the North. In fact, some of his uh, Republican supporters got a little mad because he didn't more actively campaign in the midterms for Republicans. He would do anything he could to avoid division. Uh -huh. um, so if he were alive today, he would do anything he, um, even if he had a strong base or anything, he wouldn't play to a particular base. He stood for principle and a lot of Northerners stood behind him for that principle. The principle was that slavery was evil. Well, sl slavery was wrong, uh -huh. was, was a moral wrong. And, and also um, secession was wrong too, and we must restore the union. We must restore it without slavery, and that's what he pushed for. But he never. So, if he were alive today, he would not pander to any particular group. Yeah. Well, yeah. One of the main issues we face today, and obviously the central issue for Lincoln's time, is race relations. And uh, so, it is interesting to see so many historians, uh, especially the battle over. Uh, you know, monuments and that sort of thing, where we start to see Lincoln uh, brought up occasionally in those discussions. Um, so I'd be interested to hear you summarize uh, how Lincoln's views on the subject of race uh, evolved, um, but then also how you view him or how we should view him today on that subject. Well, unfortunately, some historians cherry pick. Right. Um, particularly his early speeches, the Lincoln-Douglas debates where he says, you know, I've never, I've never um, supported the vote for, for black people. I've never uh, asked for them to serve on juries or that kind of thing. He does it in kind of grocery list to fashion because he was debating against Stephen Douglas, who was like super racist. Right. Explicitly, I mean, he, Douglas just said, you know, ours should be a white, 
man's government for forever. I mean, that's that that's all. And, and and at that moment, Lincoln found himself in Illinois competing for office against this racist who actually won the election. Uh, Douglas won, although Lincoln won the popular vote, but he won the district. He was like uh, ger- gerrymandered to district. Anyway, so Douglas won that election. But Illinois uh, had what Frederick Douglass called the worst black law of any law in the nation in 1853. If you were a, a free African-American and you weren't even living in Illinois in the first place, and if you entered the state um, after 10 days, you'd have to pay a stiff fine or face jail time, or you'd be forcibly uh, taken out of the state. I mean, it was, it was, it was you know, very bad situation. So I kind of read his early uh, comments on race in, in that light. But personally, uh, in Springfield, within three blocks of his on Jackson Street, there lived 21 uh, African-American people, and he became quite close to some of them. Uh, William Fleurville, uh, his barber, who we knew for a long time, he became very, very close to, right. helped him out in, in court for free, um, pro bono, helped him uh, get land and everything. And they, they, they became quite affectionate to each other. A guy named Johnson uh, was another uh, African-American who we got close uh-huh. to. William Donegan also. So personally, he was close, but publicly he had to be a little cautious. And even in the Civil War, uh, because he was aware of the, bo- aware of the border states and, and losing them, possibly, possibly losing, he had to be a little bit careful about his statements about race. But when he finally brought African-American soldiers into the war, about 180,000 of them, he said they really, really, he was so impressed by their performance I don't know if you've seen the movie Glory, but I mean, you know. Oh he, yeah, it's a great movie. He, he, I think it could be could be my my favorite Civil War movie. But anyway, uh, he was really really inspired by their side, and he really honestly thought we we might not have been able to win the win this war without the self sacrifice of these African American soldiers. And he met with Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass at first was wary of him because he wasn't rapid on slavery but eventually when douglas met with him he said you know lincoln lincoln is actually lincoln is actually the least prejudiced white person i've met i've met you know and 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 sojourn sojourner truth the african-american feminist visited him and she had a very similar response to him and martin delaney who frankly was beyond black life matters i mean he was like a black nationalist i mean he was Really rad, radical, radical, very radical. And he, he met with Lincoln and uh, felt quite close to Lincoln. And Lincoln appointed, gave him the highest appointment in the army, major of infantry for an African-American. For an African. right. and, but then the war stopped. And, and so he actually didn't serve. But when Delaney heard that Lincoln had been assassinated, he, he literally cried. He cried like a baby for about 45 minutes. And he wanted to uh, form a statue for Lincoln. But interesting, the, the statue had to be, um, as Delaney said, very African. It was going to be of an African woman shedding tears into an urn. And this was going to be paid for, and all her, the, the entire statue was going to be paid for by uh, previously enslaved people right. who, would each, who would each contribute a penny. Now, that never took place, but uh, I think those people today who object to uh, what actually happened, there was a, an African-American funded uh, statue that came out 
1876, of course, uh, that shows Lincoln and then um, an enslaved person that's rising up. And some people got wanted to tear down that statue because they say, oh, um, the enslaved person doesn't have enough agency in this statue. <laughs> look, look at what the... Uh, the most radical person, Martin Delaney said, you know, he, the woman is kind of kneeling and kind of looking up and, and that's exactly uh, the way uh, African-Americans felt. So, um, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, I very much object to, uh, to our objections, to current objections to that particular statue. Right. We always like to end this program with a question of what's your favorite Lincoln anecdote or story? And so I want to give you the opportunity to answer that question as well. <laughs> Oh, that's a funny one. That is such a funny one. Uh, I like two kind of anecdotes that relate to food. Uh, when he was on the, <laughs> when he was on the law circuit, um, when he was setting, he they they uh, really ate in these very seedy inns, and they stayed with bed bugs and everything like that. It was you know terrible places, and so he sat down and uh, <laughs> at one place he said. Um, well, in the absence of dinner, I think I'll dive into this cabbage, you know, <laughs> and I thought that was, and he reportedly said, uh, told uh, the waitress, uh, if this is tea, will you please bring me some coffee? But if this is coffee, will you please bring me some tea? <laughs> I thought that was a good one too. That made me laugh. That is a good but, one. But, but there are so many anecdotes, you know, that, that, that are uh, really fun. Right, right. Well, David, I really appreciate you joining us. And uh, I know our uh, readers, uh, our listeners, I should say, uh, no doubt enjoyed this. And, and I encourage all of them to go pick up your book. It's, uh, it's, it seems to be every year we have some Lincoln book that seems to uh, take the focus uh, during, during the holiday uh, book season. And I think yours has uh, solidified its place in that. So uh, best wishes as you, uh, as you sell it and as you continue on your book tour, I'm, I'm confident it'll be a large success. And I appreciate your addition to the, to the, to the uh, uh, body of Lincoln works. Joshua, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'd like all your listeners to pick up Abe <laughs> and uh, hopefully enjoy it as much as you have. And uh, thanks for having me. You are a great questioner, <laughs> interviewer. <laughs> thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show. 